Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest on The Long Run podcast is Ankit Mahadevia. Mahadevia is the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Sparrow Therapeutics. It's an antibiotic developer. Specifically, it's focused on new strategies for fighting gram-negative bacterial infections that are increasingly resistant to our existing set of antibiotics. Despite the persistent warnings you hear from global health authorities about the rise of multidrug-resistant bugs and the need for new antibiotics to fight them, most major pharma companies have limited appetite for this area of R&D, or they've gotten out altogether. There just hasn't been much money to make here. But Mahadevia started thinking differently about the future of antibiotics a few years ago as an entrepreneur in residence at Atlas Venture. The team there had come upon some research from Finland into a set of potentiator molecules, which they thought could create an opening on the surface of gram-negative bacteria. This was a pretty clever idea. Essentially, the thought is that these potentiators should allow many of our existing gram-positive directed antibiotics to get inside these hardy gram-negative bugs and kill them. The science created enough of an opportunity for Sparrow to raise significant venture capital. I first wrote about the company when it raised its Series A round of $30 million in June 2015. The company then went public last November. On this show, Mahadevia talks about a whole set of career experiences that led him to this moment in antibiotic R&D, along with some creative ideas that are being floated to create new business incentives to revitalize this important field. Anyone interested in creative thinking about how we stave off the post-antibiotic world will find this to be an interesting listen. Now, before we get started, if you enjoy listening to these in-depth interviews, you'll love reading Timmerman Report, my subscription publication. This is where you can read in-depth features and focused research articles you won't find anywhere else. You can subscribe to Timberman Report for $149 a year per person and expect two to three articles per week. When you buy a subscription, you support quality journalism and you don't have to see any ads. Discounted subscriptions are available for academic institutions and for corporate groups that obtain sharing licenses. For details, ask me at luke at timbermanreport.com. Now, join me and Ankit Mahadevya for the long run. With me today is Ankit Mahadevia. He's the CEO of Sparrow Therapeutics, an antibiotic developer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome, Ankit. Thanks for joining me on the long run. Thank you, Luke. We appreciate the invitation. Okay, so you've heard a few of these shows, I, I know, and I like to start with a little bit on the person before we dive into the business that you're in. Because, you know, I, I don't think uh, we all pop out of the womb fully formed as antibiotic developers. <laughs> uh, we, we, we have people who are in our lives and, and influence us and help us along the way. So maybe uh, you could just start off with uh, where, where are you from? So I'm uh, born and raised in, in Chicago, Illinois. I'm the only, uh, maybe one of the very few Northsiders who's actually a White Sox fan. And so that's been with me since, uh, since uh, growing up. And actually, so my uh, first generation or second generation immigrant, my parents came to this country in the 
late 60s, and you know, my father had the opportunity to either study at the University of Illinois or at the University of California, Berkeley. And so I would have been either a Midwesterner or a Bay Area person, and that's certainly also um, you know, just sort of the choices we make in life. And, you know, no... Oh, wait a minute. You mentioned this part about the White Sox fan. How, how did that happen on the North Side? <laughs> so, so and, and you know, if anybody from White Sox marketing is listening, sometimes it works. Um, you know, when I was in, in, in grade school, they used to give away free tickets for folks that had good attendance or good grades. And so that got me to about half a dozen White Sox games a year when I was growing up. And I just never, uh, I mean, it stuck with me. So, you know, for embattled White Sox fans, you know, this, this stuff works. <laughs> in Cubs territory in the north side, for those people who are not, not baseball fans. So you said your parents immigrated to the U.S. in the 60s. Where did they come from? They came from India. So the western part of India, maybe an hour's flight north of Bombay. So actually, and you said, how, how did I get my start on antibiotics? My father's an in, engineer, and my mother was actually uh, trained as a microbiologist in India. And, and you sort of... You know, it wasn't really uh, microbes haven't been sort of part of family dinner table discussions, but I definitely did get a, a microscope from a, a, from a relative of the family when I was uh, younger. But just generally, I think what it did was gave us, uh, uh, both my brother and I, an appreciation for science as well as the role of healthcare more broadly. We don't actually have any physicians um, in the family, the immediate family per se. Uh, but healthcare was always fascinating for two ways. I think that one, it's sort of everywhere that we go. And, you know, my my grandparents both, you know, passed away early in my life. And certainly we got our exposure to the healthcare system um, that way as well. It sounds like education was a point of emphasis from from your parents to, to both you and your brother. Yeah, absolutely. We were fortunate that, that really we didn't get any, any, any sort of explicit guidance as to where to go. But the idea of, you know, learning something and doing something with our lives was pretty present wherever it was. And to their credit, I think they sort of looked at their experience coming from India to America the way I do as an entrepreneur is that everything's new. You don't know what you don't know until you get there and you figure it out. And they put a lot of onus on us uh, to figure it out. And I think that as, as, we, as I've gone through my career, um, uh, it's been a lot of just taking one step at a time and, and figuring it out. So I, I really didn't, uh, I'm trained as a physician and, um, you know, but I really didn't think about being an entrepreneur until later on in my career. I knew I wanted to have an impact in healthcare in some way, but it's a, it's a huge um, system and, you know, in terms of thinking of policy reform and the way that it impacts people. So, you know, I really didn't know how I wanted to have an impact. And I essentially, you know, through university and onward have, have basically tried everything uh, that I could think of in, in a way to have an impact. Let's go back just a little bit. You're you're a, a native son of Chicago. Uh, I think you went to Northwestern for your undergraduate. Uh, what What were you studying there or what did you imagine you might do? Yeah, so I was uh, in classic, maybe keeping with that theme, classic figure it out mode. I, I did a little bit of everything. I was a, a biology and an economics double major, and I was a part of uh, Northwestern had a program where they uh, saved your admission to med school and got you there a year sooner. And, you know, obviously we weren't, uh, you know, I was basically charged with funding my education, so spending a year less on my education was extremely attractive to me. And, and that's how I got there. And you know, certainly learned about the science of the uh, 
uh, of the human body through my biology work, but then worked with a, a really great professor who I think at almost 90 now is still working hard to this day, Bert Weisbrod, who really thought was an economist that thought about the intersection of healthcare with broader social issues. And so I did uh, almost three years of work with him in terms of thinking about the impact that different choices we have on a policy perspective impact what happens to patients. And so I really wanted to get as broad an exposure as I could to healthcare, and you know, just like I have for the rest of my career, tried a little bit of everything. So you could have done a lot of different things. Economics and biology, that, that's an interesting combo. Uh, but you decided to go to medical school. Uh, were you thinking that you would become a, a practicing physician? So even to this day, I, I, you know, I still, both are still really attractive to me. I actually took a very circuitous route. So you know, having that admission in hand, I thought that I wanted to uh, see a little bit more of the world and see a little bit of a different side of healthcare before I, uh, uh, I moved back into med school. So I actually deferred my admission a couple of times and, uh, and went first to the government. And my advisor, uh, Dr. Professor Weisbrod, had... Um, you know, suggested that I think about public policy. And so I, I worked for the uh, U.S. Government Accountability Office right out of university. Um, actually, even before that, I spent a period of time in Mexico working with their healthcare system. I worked with their public health system uh, to better understand other parts of the world uh, besides the U.S. And came back to the U.S. and I worked for the GAO, which is really the investigative branch of Congress focused on um, how we better implement the Medicare policy. I was the youngest person perhaps that they'd ever hired, at least in that division. I think they, they, threw, me a, uh, they threw me a party um, you know, to sort of celebrate my hiring. It turns out I was too young to legally drink the booze that they had bought <laughs> to do something different. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay, so you did, you, this sounds like a great learning experience. I mean, digging into Medicare and how it's supposed to work and how sometimes it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we traveled the country. Congress had asked us to look at some of the policies that really make Medicare what it is and how to make them better, how to increase their efficiency, how to make them more effective. So it was a, it was a fascinating exposure to, uh, um, you know, how the system works. And perhaps as I thought ahead to practicing medicine, the system in which I'd be doing that. So I did that for a year and then really, you know, I felt like I had learned what I wanted to learn and wanted to experience the business side of it. So I went to a spin out out of Harvard Business School called the Monitor Group, which does consulting for a variety of industries, but from, for me, most notably, pharma and med device. And so really thought about it from that other aspect of things, which is how do we think about this from a device developer's perspective or a drug developer's perspective? And it was, it was sort of a fascinating uh, view on things. And at that point, you know, a couple of years had passed and, you know, my sort of, it was sort of now or never in terms of how, whether I was going to study medicine or not. And um, um, made the decision in part because some of the casework I had done at Monitor had, uh, um, you know, I'd spent a lot of time with cardiologists and cath labs and with oncologists thinking about uh, you know, some of the, 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 the infusions that they were using. And, and it sort of got me back excited again about the science and the human interaction of what we do in medicine. And so with that, um, you know, I thought it was time to go back. And I actually then sort of looked widely because having seen the country, uh, just traveling around in my GAO travels, I thought I wanted to see a different part of the country than the Midwest. And so I ended up uh, 
uh, going to Johns Hopkins uh, after that period of time. Uh, but Johns Hopkins is there in Baltimore. Uh, so you're, um, you, you settle in for medical school. Uh, did you, what, what were you hoping to accomplish there? So I legitimately thought and, you know, that I, I could sort of have a, you know, an impact with patients, but also have a part of what I did uh, think about the broader system in which we, we work. Uh, the GAO experience as well as the, the consulting experience really taught me that, you know, helping patients is important. We practice medicine in a broader context. And, you know, in terms of helping patients, it's as important to get each individual patient interaction right it's also important to get the system right. And so that's how I thought about it. And, and a lot of my research uh, you know, at Hopkins focused on those areas. But still, it, it was sort of, it was the same maybe spirit in which I had sort of done a little bit of everything in university. I did the same thing at, uh, at Hopkins. I took a variety of, uh, so Hopkins, and I'll put in a plug for them, and I think it's still this way, gave a tremendous amount of flexibility to folks once you finish the basic requirements. And I really took that to the, uh, to the fullest degree. And so I did a variety of different things while I was there and really extended that program out for as long as is, uh, you know, probably feasible. I probably set a record uh, there, at least my dean tells me so. So I, you know. How long was that, that, that experience for you? It was, a, it was a, a number of years. Standard is, uh, you know, four years to get through med school. This was, uh, you know, a good bit longer than that. Um, you know, several several years longer than that. So really, okay. And this is, um, but you you had this systematic kind of thought from early on, which I think is kind of unusual. Like that t- tends to come later to doctors. They tend to be more focused on, you know, the science and, and treating the patients, the, the individual doctor patient relationship. I had a, you know, it's interesting. So I had a, um, we don't have anybody in the immediate family that's a physician. I have a, a, a relative who happens to be a pulmonologist. And, you know, we would go to their, you know, their place um, and, and have breakfast every, you know, every month or so. And every discussion revolved, at least for him, around uh, Medicare, Medicaid policy, some of the, you know, HMO ideas that were going on at the time. So I got a, I got an earful of it pretty early on, and so it was hard for me not to conceive of being a physician without having to think through this, and so that's sort of where it okay. came from. And well, so how did you get excited here about becoming an entrepreneur? Yeah, so it, it, it long circuitous route. So it, it it took doing a lot of different things, and so I'll sort of fast forward through through my training, you know, along with uh, learning how to you, you know understand, see, diagnose, and the science of medicine. I, I, like I said, I extended that period of time out. Um, I went to Genentech and I worked with uh, the business development team there to understand how deals are done. I went to Capitol Hill. I worked on uh, the Senate Health Education, Labor, uh, and Pensions Committee. Um, I worked at McKinsey and you know helped with uh, their hospital practice. Um, and then I also maybe leading it all to it, I got back and my uh, sort of had settled into the idea of getting ready to think about ophthalmology training. And I was uh, finishing up electives and doing research and, and, and the like, and uh, was contacted by uh, a colleague at Hopkins, uh, Jim Campbell, who's uh, become, who's a prolific entrepreneur in his own right, who was starting a company based on neuropathic pain in Baltimore. Um, and I had a research few months 
timing was good. Uh, had just gotten married and had to pay off a wedding on a on a med student salary, which is negative. And so it was a really good time <laughs> for me to uh, to uh, explore that route. And so you know there was a company called Arcyon Therapeutics that was getting off the ground. Um, Jim and his colleague Kerry Brady were both uh, excellent. Had raised some money from from some VCs and they were getting the company off of the ground. And I got to get into the engine room with them um, in the time that I had thinking about, you know, how to get their phase one trial off the ground, thinking about business development and how to use the money that, that, that we had wisely. And it gave me a taste of what it's like to really get things together from the ground up. And I sort of put that away. And as I was just embarking on the decision of whether to do further training or, or not, and it would have been in ophthalmology, um, I was uh, put in touch through uh, an old colleague with the the team at Atlas Venture, and you know, uh, John Francois Formella and Bruce Booth both got in touch with me and uh, gave me the opportunity to work with them at the time where Atlas was starting to think about, as many firms have now, uh, think about uh, the company formation model, and the idea of company formation really resonates with me. I, I guess just going backwards a little bit for me. It sort of allows one to do a little bit of everything, much as I have over time. And also just for me, um, from a family perspective, you know, we love building things. You know, so we don't, we didn't grow up with a lot when we were, were younger. We would just, for example, we needed bedroom furniture. We got spare boards and we built it. Hearing you describe some of the moves that you made, it sounds like, I mean, you're just a really curious person, kind of like an intellectual omnivore, to picking up things that you can learn at places like Genentech, McKinsey, studying uh, various con- clients and their needs, um, Medicare, all, all the system. There's a lot there that you're, you're putting pieces together and learning each step. Um, but then you get to this point where you're graduating from medical school and it's time to decide whether to do a uh, a residency, presumably, in, in ophthalmology, as you say, that's going to be a long-term commitment where you, you get very, you know, focused and narrow. Um, and you decide, well, now, now, which, um, what years are we talking? When did you make this decision to, to go in and, and help start companies at Atlas? Yeah, this was over 10 years ago. So about 10 years ago, this is around the financial crisis time. Yeah, I think a little bit before that. Uh, so, Exactly. So it was it was a really interesting time to to consider it, and I think you you've got it right, which is that, you know, what attracted me to sort of thinking about something before. I mean, I, I did what every person in the middle of their medical training does, which is sort of think, okay, I'm going to try this out. If it doesn't work, I can come back and and you know resume what I was doing. And, and the attraction of it for me was the opportunity to build things. And as as you say. Uh, really continued to be an intellectual omnivore. It's still what I love about what I do right now is that you have to take every bit of signal from every discipline you can, craft it into a cogent narrative, and do something about it in terms of getting a therapy to patients. It's what I still love. Now at Atlas, uh, it looks like you were pretty prolific here in these early years. You had your hands in lots of different pots, maybe four to six different companies. But then let's talk about Sparrow. This would have been, I, I remember first talking to you about this around the time of the Series A. This would have been spring of 2015. And antibiotics then and now were uh, not exactly in fashion. <laughs> what about this arena and the technology that you were looking at at the time made you say that this is something I want to sink my teeth into? For me, just personally, it's it's always been um, 
exciting for me to go where everyone else isn't going. I mean, my kids even give me a hard time about it. If there's a long line at the at the fair, I'll go where the line isn't, even if they want to stay and wait in line. You know, for me, that's what antibiotics is, is, is an opportunity with really excellent fundamentals where, you know, I see the, the we see collectively as a team here at Sparrow, the opportunity uh, for something really great to happen where there's not a lot of entrance into this, uh, this arena. So I, I guess stepping back, right, you're, this is the, the, my first foray into antibacterials. As you noted, you know, actually I've worked now on, on nine companies. Um, you know, what uh, several have become companies that were ultimately sold and several have become companies that are now trading on the NASDAQ, including Sparrow. And you know, we started Sparrow in 2014 with the, you know, with a seed before you and I uh, got to know each other around the Series A. And we see this field, especially with some of the legislative changes that took place in 2012, where this is a really uh, important opportunity. Um, there's a huge unmet need. I think that you know one of the statistics that really startled me was that uh, you know if you look at just the deaths that are directly attributable to, to infectious disease in the U.S. each year, it's a jumbo jet full of Americans every week that die because we don't have therapeutics to treat their particular infections. And that's not to count um, the many millions of other uh, Americans who are dying of infection but may have been suffering from a chronic disease. You know, a number of the chronic disease deaths that we have, the final common pathway is infection. And there's a new translational paradigm now. You know, certainly we're not uh, required anymore for those antibiotics that hit unmet need to get drugs approved like we get diabetes and hypertension drugs approved. This looks a lot more like what we're used to in biotech, which is for unmet need, a more rapid path to clinic. And the GAIN Act and the 21st Century Cure Act, which, you know, passed in 2012 and then in uh, last year respectively, have really given us the ability to be thoughtful with our colleagues at the FDA and EMA about how to get drugs that patients need to, to the market quickly. And now we have some real world examples of that. Uh, also, there's great non-dilutive support and the translational models that we have in this field, you know, speaking from someone who's been in fields from neuro, neuroscience to immunology and the like, these are pretty high fidelity models that tell us pretty early that we've got a drug. Essentially, if you've got a, an experimental antibiotic that is killing a bug in mice and rats and live animals, chances are a little better than average that this is also going to kill the bug in people, as opposed to, say, some other disease categories where, you know, the preclinical models are, are not as predictive. Yeah, exactly. And so thematically for me, it had all the fundamentals that get me excited, which is, you know, good fundamentals, not a big crowd there yet, good translational markers, which is really important for me as thinking as a biotech entrepreneur. I want to know early that the, the signal that we see is going to have fidelity through when we start to write the bigger checks to get, you know, phase one, phase two and phase three trials. Um, going. And, you know, I, I guess for me, spiritually, it's, it's, it's great that we're going to have an impact with the therapeutics that we have, but also in a field that's relatively less crowded, we can have an impact on the overall field as well. So we can impact patients' lives through the therapies that we have, but also by creating a sustainable business model in the field.
Being in a venture capital firm, though, you know, you think about business models and value propositions. And um, I mean, there's a reason uh, there's not a big crowd there in antibiotics. And I mean, I think, you know, taking that uh, 30,000 foot view, I mean, antibiotics are this like great success story, right? From the middle of the 20th century, tons and tons of innovation occurred there and, and fighting off all kind of, from penicillin onward. And but then, uh, you know, a lot of these things went generic and um, we sort of began to take them for granted as a society and, and, and treating them as such when we pay for them, basically treating them like they should be free or dirt cheap. Uh, and, and it almost makes it so that the class becomes a victim of its own success. It's really hard to come forward with a new antibiotic and uh, beat um, very good older ones. Um, and then, you know, get uh, adequately paid for, for these things. So, but, but you, you obviously thought about this and looked at the field and said there's, a, there, there's some reason to think that this may change. What, what was occurring, you know, around that formation of Sparrow that made you think things are going to improve? It's not just me. I have to give credit to my colleagues at Atlas, also the team at SR1, um, you know, Lundbeck funded and a lot of the folks that were early adopters of Sparrow for sort of sharing this vision and helping us shape it. Uh, and also put in a plug for my Atlas colleagues for, uh, you know, giving me the opportunity to learn um, a lot of what I use now, uh, both whether at Sparrow or at other companies. And I think what, you know, the folks that I've learned from and work with have, uh, have taught me is to sort of really look at the fundamentals and look beyond the current sentiment to what's, what's coming. I think that in general, if I sort of step back and, and I'll sort of answer your question from, from the top down, um, the job of, of biotechs when they're at their best has really been to find solutions for what patients need, where the path to get there isn't intuitively obvious or it's deemed as too risky by the broader ecosystem. I mean, I think that the phenomenon that you're commenting on is that I think the broader ecosystem hasn't found the pathway between you know, drug development in this sector and getting to what patients need. Uh, we agree. I mean, we see the prevalence data every day. We see the Sentinel reports. Um, you know, our head of clinical, clinical microbiology gives that to us. We may have been in a period uh, a decade ago where our antibiotics w worked, quote, pretty well. But there's both anecdotal evidence and now prevalence that a lot of the antibiotics we take uh, for granted every day just don't work. I mean, so take a catastrophic example, we're seeing uh, evidence both in the US and particularly in, in Asia of strains of antibiotics that don't respond to anything that we've got. Well, and of course, there's a, there's a reason for this. I mean, multiple reasons, but, you know, up there high. I mean, we feed antibiotics and livestock feed all the time. And, and there's all kinds of overprescribing that has occurred for many, many years, which enables the bugs to develop resistance. So now we're getting more and more multi-drug resistant bugs. And, and even more than that, it's not just the, you, you know, the, the bugs that could kill you, even the routine infections. I mean, perhaps you have or someone you know has taken a fluoroquinolone like Cipro or, or Leviquin, right? We take them relatively routinely for infections that aren't life-threatening, but are certainly important. Uh, or the treatments we have for sexually transmitted diseases like gonorrhea. The resistance rates for both of those, those types of medications are at an all-time high. You know, for example, in the hospital, 35% of patients that receive fluoroquinolones like Cipro or Leviquin in the hospital are resistant. 
So you imagine 10 years ago, we could use fluoroquinolones widely and we didn't have an issue. Now there's a one in three chance that that drug that we've relied on for since the 80s doesn't work. And same now in the treatment of gonorrhea. It used to be a fairly straightforward proposition. Now we're seeing wide levels of resistance to those first-line therapies. It's not just superbugs that are an issue. It's the entire uh, sort of general practice of prescribing antibiotics that's under threat. Just as an interesting little aside, you know, you'll you'll know that uh, I mean, I I just got back from Mount Everest and I had to carry some antibiotics with me. Cipro was in my bag, and when I got there, we learned from the the medics at Ferrishay <laughs> that uh, Cipro is basically useless in the Himalayas now. So it's everything's resistant to it. <laughs> So And, and so in, in sort of going back to your earlier question, that's one of the reasons why the group of us that got Sparrow off of the ground really, you know, believe and continue to, to buy into that story is that, you know, the, the one, the, the where we're at in terms of the antibiotic pipeline is widely underappreciated. Independent of that, that's an opportunity for us because our thesis around Sparrow in the field is that good pipeline selection is the answer to how we sort of bridge that gap. I think there's no doubt that patients need new antibiotics to replace the ones that are failing, you know, both for you, Luke, but, and also for folks in our ICUs and our EDs and the like. Um, we have a, a, a strategy as to how to get there, and that's our job. I think that's why we're seeing a lot of biotech activity in this field, because this is the job, in my opinion, of what we should be doing is, is finding a way to meet that unmet need when it's not immediately right in front of us to go ahead and grab. If you enjoy listening to these interviews with biotech newsmakers, you'll love reading Timmerman Report, my subscription publication. You can subscribe to Timmerman Report for $149 a year per person and expect two to three in-depth articles per week. Discounts are available for academic institutions. Some of the best research institutions in the U.S. are signed up, MIT, UC Berkeley, University of Chicago, and USC, to name a few. Many top pharma companies have opted to upgrade from individual subscriptions to group sharing licenses. For details, ask me at luke at timbermanreport.com. And is your company interested in raising its profile among biotech industry leaders and in supporting quality journalism? Think about sponsoring the Long Run Podcast. I'm only allowing room for one, maybe two, sponsors of this show over a year's time. I don't want to bombard readers and listeners with useless ads. Your time and attention have value. When allowing someone to sponsor this show, I want to make sure that entity has something useful and constructive to say to biotech leaders. If your organization fits that description and you're willing to be patient, sponsorship of the long run could be a rewarding experience. Ask me about it at luke at timmermanreport.com. So let, let's talk about this founding idea for Sparrow. Now, I know that you have an oral carbapenem now that uh, is sort of your lead candidate, uh, and that would be the first of its kind, because uh, I, I believe all the carbapenems are intravenous, so there's certain advantages that come with an oral formulation. But but I think even before that, you found some technology for a, a potentiator program out of Finland, I believe. <laughs> Tell me about that. Yeah, and sort of step back, that's, that's the vision that we had, was the idea that uh, as, as, a, as a venture group and, and a team, um, 
We had the idea that the, the field needs new options, that the fundamentals of the field made it right for biotech to get involved. And, and that was basically it. Our mandate was build the right pipeline for today's version of antibiotic. It's not the same uh, challenges, constraints, or opportunities we had in the 80s. It's a different world. And just build a pipeline. Be creative, be thoughtful. And, and it sort of led us to how we found the Potentiator platform. So one of the things that really brought me to Sparrow to, to really bet 100% of my time on it was the group that we have here. Um, it's a really experienced, deep group that's been in the field for a while. Uh, they have four launched drugs to their name, uh, 12 approved drugs, 18 phase three trials, and sort of on and on. And the, the experience level and understanding, I'm just in awe of them every day. And you know, a lot of what we've built comes from the relationships that this group has built over time. So our chief scientific officer had a relationship with a professor at the University of Helsinki. He and his brother started a company called Northern Antibiotics. This professor was really the world's expert in thinking about how gram-negative bacteria uh, are so much more resistant to the antibiotics we have than gram-positive. And just simple, simple version, you know, gram-positive are drugs or bugs like Staph aureus and, and, and the like. Gram-negative is more like E. coli Klebsiella Gram-negatives is where we have the resistance challenge today. And the reason is that different from all other cells uh, that are around, they have this outer envelope that really physically keeps a lot of great antibiotics out. So this professor devoted last 30 years to figuring out how that barrier works and what to do about it. And he had started a company based on the premise that he could design molecules that bind to that outer membrane and reduce their ability to keep those drugs out. And so, you know, great story. They had found uh, just as true entrepreneurs, they had, you know, f uh, financed the company creatively and got to the point where, you know, they were ready to think about further pre-IND development, but just didn't have the capital to do so. Um, we built a relationship with them over the next coming months and then brought in the Potentiator platform. And so these are, these are molecules that bind to the outer layer of a gram-negative bacteria and and create an opening right for for the for the for the existing antibiotics to get inside and and kill it exactly i mean think about the outer membrane is a picket fence around the house we're taking posts out of the picket fence so we folks can get into the house in higher levels so antibiotics don't work uh not necessarily because a bug is just frankly resistant it's not binary it's that higher concentrations are required to kill the bug than you see in the blood. When you remove this outer membrane, you're allowing the antibiotics that you can give to get into the cell at much higher concentrations and therefore do a better job. So for many different classes of antibiotics, that potentiation platform has the ability to enhance the spectrum of what we've got. And so it sort of keeps with stewardship in that we can use the antibiotics that we know, but we know that we can have a broader spectrum around them. And then as time went on through some targeted partnering and some really good work by our, our chemistry team, we were able to make a next-gen compound that meets those principles, but then binds to the outer membrane so potently that it actually kills the bacteria all on its own. Really? <laughs> um, okay. So these are, I think you mentioned some of these, these bugs that are hard to treat. People sometimes get these in the hospital. They're also hard to pronounce, so I, I've tried. I will try not to butcher them. But <laughs> Pseudomonas, Acinetobacter. These are <laughs> you're like a on microbiologist, list, right? Luke. I, I play one on TV too. You're doing great. 
<laughs> I try. Um, so, uh, I mean, I heard you mention the word stewardship, and this is an important concept. You hear that this is kind of like a watchword in antibiotics, the, the, sort of like the responsible, careful, uh, rational use of what we have, right? Exactly. So stewardship is um, uh, here to stay, in our opinion. It is a good thing for patients to use antibiotics wisely. Uh, it's sort of a circular point of view. We have no choice now to, to, but to use what we have wisely because we don't have a whole lot of options. You know, our take on stewardship is that when we, we at Sparrow have been fortunate that we've been getting, we had the mandate from the very beginning to, to, to curate our pipeline, meaning that we didn't have a pipeline or a thesis that constrained us. We just had the opportunity to go around the world, like to places like Finland uh, or to Japan for our oral carbapenem and find the assets that make sense for today's antibiotic era. And to us, what makes sense are therapeutics where we see a reasonable clinical and commercial path forward in an era of stewardship. You know, it's not, the days are gone now of trying to get an antibiotic approved for half a dozen indications and hoping that folks are just going to prescribe it like water. That's not how it works anymore. It's a much like the rest of the, you know, the, the, the drug development pipeline. You have to find the right drug for the right patient population and find a defined benefit there. Well, part of what's interesting here is that fundamental tension between like our, our capitalist economic system and uh, public health. So, you know, as a company, you know, companies develop a drug, they tend to want to sell as much of it as they possibly can. And that in pharmaceuticals means more and more prescriptions. Uh, well, <laughs> that actually is a self-defeating thing in the case of antibiotics. If you get too many prescriptions, especially in unnecessary situations, you get resistance, and that creates even bigger problems. Uh, so this is part of the, the concept of stewardship, the, the intelligent use of it. Um, but <laughs> so, I mean, how, how do you think about like that that tension to create a drug that's that's effective but used responsibly so it comes back to pipeline selection luke i think you make an important point is that i think certainly for antibiotics but also generally there's a fundamental tension in today's healthcare system to use branded and new therapeutics for those patients that need it where the investment justifies the benefit so What's incumbent on us in antibiotics is to choose those areas of unmet need where there's not an obvious other choice. You know, a good example is what you were mentioning around Cipro and Leviquin, right? So now that Cipro and Leviquin have such high rates of resistance, there are no more options that you can give a patient short of sticking them in the hospital and giving them an IV to treat a variety of resistant gram-negative infections. And these aren't small numbers, right? I think there's... Uh, Last count, there's over 11 million patients with different forms of urinary tract infections alone just in the U.S., and a large proportion of those are failing fluoroquinolones, right? So in that setting, we chose to invest in 994, our oral carbapenem, because we're going after those many millions of patients for which, you know, stewardship is important, but in this case, you know, you don't have any other options, right? You have a patient, I'll give you an example, right, of a patient one of our uh, advisors gave us the case of this patient that, that he had seen uh, just a few weeks before we met him. You know, and this is a patient who's 75-year-old woman, has a urinary tract infection, has been 
you know, it, it was hospitalized for it. And, you, you know, in the hospital, you typically get your cultures and sensitivities. You know whether or not you're going to be able to treat your particular infection with a particular antibiotic. And in general, 10 years ago, what you would do, what I was taught to do, is you try to get that person out of the hospital as soon as possible. And that typically meant giving, sending them home on an oral fluoroquinolone, like a Cipro or Leviquin. Now, 35% resistance rates in the hospital, this woman had to stay for the full seven to 10 days uh, of getting her antibiotic dose. Perfectly healthy, perfectly fine, looked great, but had no choice but to be stuck in the hospital with an IV where Unfortunately, she picked up something else and ended up staying even longer. So to that point, my long way of saying that there, good stewardship would dictate that we have to use an agent like a 994 that treats these resistant bugs where fluoroquinolones can't. You know, I think that we have to be disciplined and we have been at Sparrow about what we choose to invest in. So we will only choose those therapies that don't compete with obvious generic answers that we have already that are approved, number one. Number two is we have to have a broader uh, subset of patients that we can treat. You know, it's not enough to find the few thousand patients that have a particular resistant organism. Part of your pipeline has to help a lot of patients. It's one of the reasons we've invested in an agent like 994 as well as, well as the rest of our pipeline. And I think the last thing, to, speaking to stewardship, is I, I think it's, the days are also gone where you can do a non-inferiority study against an, an obvious generic therapeutic and then expect that physicians are going to do the math and use it. You know, our data has to mean something. And so historically, the field has done non-inferiority studies against available generic comparators. What that tells you is you have an agent that's as safe and as effective as something that's already out there and where stewardship would dictate that, that other agents used first. You know, we're committed at Sparrow to designing trials where the data points you to the patient population and circumstances where you use this over something else. So that means a, superior, a superiority trial design. It may mean, so in the case of, for example, our, we have an orphan therapeutic called 720 that treats the tens of thousands of patients that suffer from non-tuberculous mycobacterial disease. Think of that as smoker's lung uh, that's not treated with the usual smoker's lung therapies or tuberculosis that doesn't respond to TB therapies. These patients are on antibiotic therapy for most of their lives and, and really unhappy as they do it. Uh, in that setting, this, the, the regulatory standard will, will likely be a superiority study, and we're committed to looking at that as the drug declares itself. For 994, uh, as an example, what we've committed to, even in our public guidance, is a study that's basically what we call an IV and a pill study. We are putting our oral carbapenem, which is, as you noted, quite unique, as that there are no other oral carbapenems, uh, against head-to-head -head against an IV carbapenem. And with that non-inferiority result, what we're trying to tell physicians through that data set is that it doesn't matter if it's oral or IV. You know, that woman that I was telling you about that didn't have anything to go home on, you can send her home with confidence because we've shown in the study, a pivotal study, that the oral does the same therapeutic job as an IV. So it doesn't have to be superiority, but the design has to speak to a specific clinical, uh, clinical question. There should be a different mechanism, um, but but um, sending a patient home uh, as opposed to keeping them in the hospital also um, helps hospitals with some of their economic uh, imperatives. It costs money to keep people in the hospital. No question. And actually, in fact, the cost to treat a UTI patient in the U.S. over the last 10 years has nearly doubled. 
And it's not because our patients are getting sicker or the drugs are more expensive. It's because they're spending more time in the hospital and that's inherently expensive. And as a patient, you know, certainly for me, I, I, I want to be nowhere near a hospital if I can help it. But despite all these good things that are happening, like you're seeing um, interesting science, uh, possibility, uh, some flexibility from the regulatory authorities. I mean, I think the FDA has been very consistent in saying, at least for the last five or so years, that you know this is a serious problem and we want to work with drug developers uh, to kind of streamline the approval pathways. Um, yet we see big pharma um, you know, continuing to cut back or, or bail out of the space. Why is that? Well, I think it goes back to, uh, um, it's sort of a, a, a timing phenomenon. So as I look back at the last 10 years of, you know, any bacterial drug development, unfortunately, and it's really bad for patients, we haven't been either in big pharma, uh, especially in big pharma, but also in biotech, we haven't been extremely productive in creating a robust pipeline of new therapies behind what we already have, right? So there's not that, you know, iterational growth story. I think secondly, um, you know, the, 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 the fruits of the GAIN Act haven't been fully appreciated or realized. In fact, after the GAIN Act, we saw companies like Roche, uh, including with us, make bets, uh, new bets in the space. So, so I would say that, you know, certainly there are still several active uh, drug development organizations in, in antibacterials. I think the final thing goes back to how we think about pipeline selection. You know, the opportunity for biotech, and it's much, much as it was for you know, oligonucleotides before pharma got involved, before, for biologics before pharma got involved in a big way, for, you know, to take a more recent example, for cell therapy, right? It, you know, the job of biotech was to figure out a way to make the path from those scientific discoveries to patient delivery intuitively obvious, right? And it's at that point where you're starting to see pharma get back into and make big investments in cell therapy, gene therapy, biologics, uh, oligonucleotides now as well. Our job right now, I think, before pharma gets back in, is to you know continue to pave that groundwork and, and get this right. And to me, what it means is smart pipeline selection. And as a field, we haven't always done that. And second is, you know, looking at those assets that are best positioned to really create that sustainable distribution model. You know, for example, and we've been thinking about it since the inception of Sparrow as a preclinical company. You know, we've we've hired uh, senior commercial expertise to really think through not just how do you get drugs approved, but how do you get them into patients in a way that's sustainable. You know, we think an agent like 994, given that there's no good generic alternatives and a wide range of patients we can treat, is a great um, uh, vehicle for us to to show that. How do you guys? How do you guys think about um, the diagnostic uh, piece of this? Uh, you know, I, I actually just saw a startup company announce its debut last week uh, saying that they want to use the cheap, fast DNA sequencing to identify these harmful uh, gram-negative bugs. Um, I think it comes out of Harvard, Stanford, David Sinclair, Carlos Bustamante. Uh, they want to identify these bugs in five minutes uh, at a hospital. Uh, Seems like, I mean, a, an improvement over the t classic tissue culture that you need to leave out overnight to find out what you even have to treat. And in the mean, and this is part of the reason we have uh, overprescribing of antibiotics, right? That doctors, you know, feel the need to do something when a patient presents with some serious symptoms. 
prescribing a broad spectrum antibiotic, even when you don't know exactly what you're what you're trying to kill. Yeah, and I think there's so step back to your point, Luke. There's there's two developments. So I guess number one is is that you know at Sparrow we take the world as it is, um, and we pick a pipeline that we think will you know grow the company, build the company, and, and create a sustainable distribution model regardless, even if the world stays as it is today. To your point, there's two important developments that continue to pave the way, much like the the Gain Act and and the very a uh, large amount of public investment that's gone into the field as well have done. Number one is, as you note, um, rapid diagnostics that could create a very tight data-driven case uh, to balance stewardship with the volume of prescription. If you know early on what patient needs what, you can create a reimbursement case around it, much as we have with genetic subtype diseases, whether they're on oncology or neurology to date. Uh, and so that science is advancing in, in a very exciting way and there are companies out there that are also trying to bring that systematically to patients, whether in Europe or, or in the U.S. Uh, the second development that, that I, I, that's worth watching as the field goes on is the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the construction of different market entry types of mechanisms. And there's two that are of, you know, sort of the most momentum now. One is an act in Congress called Revamp, where it, companies that are getting uh, antibiotics of high unmet need uh, to the market have the ability to uh, receive tradable exclusivity vouchers uh, that would enhance the exclusivity of whichever drug it's applied to, much as we do for uh, pediatric diseases today. Uh, the second is a pilot project that you know FDA and CMS have been advancing to create more of a kind of like we license software, a software licensing model, particularly for those hospital-based antibiotics where you're really low volumes of patients that have high levels of mortality, which is a really good place to think of a licensing model. You need those um, wide-ranging agents available, and you want to reduce the pressure to have them being used, but still compensate uh, um, you know, a drug developer for the risk and investment that it takes to get a drug approved. I'm glad you brought these up because I, I think of the that latter one that you described, this, the licensing model provides uh, could provide a certain amount of predictability. I mean, you, Sparrow, could uh, sell a license to the big hospital down the street in Boston and get paid a decent amount. Um, and then the hospital, it's up to them to manage how many prescriptions they really need to write within the scope of their license. It, you're not getting paid on a prescri prescription volume basis. Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's, there's details to be worked out, but the general idea is exactly that, is that you make the return, uh, an annual return to an antibiotic drug sponsor more predictable, and you reduce the pressure that that drug developer would have to place on the system to increase the volume of prescriptions. I think it works for both parties. Again, to be clear though, certainly we take the world as it is and agents like 994 and the like, we see, we think have a, a very strong chance to have considerable momentum as we get there. Again, because so many patients need it and because there are no clear other options. You know, what we, in any field generally, if patients need something, typically the system finds a way to make it happen. And I think what's incumbent on us as drug developers is certainly to continue to contribute to some of these solutions that you note on the diagnostic side and the payer side, but also to pick pipelines that are you know, really worth prescribing. You know, what, I, what we want to hear, it, it's sort of interesting, when we think about bringing in uh, programs, uh, the, the potentiator platform is a good example, 
994, which we brought in from Japan, is a good example. You know, our uh, clinical, commercial, and, and, and research teams sit around and, and we talk to physicians before we bring things in. We want to hear a physician just jump up and down and say that they want this. If this is with them, they will prescribe it. Not kind of like, oh, it could be nice, it, it might be helpful, but really we want to hear loud and clear across the board that people want this. And oral carbapenem like 994 is a good example. You know, I'll give you an example. You know, we live, we live now not too far from the, the Longwood complex, uh, just uh, in, in Brookline. So a lot of my uh, uh, son's friends are physicians, whether it's at the Brigham or, 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 or the like. And, you know, we have barbecues, we have school events, and so you get into what do you do for a living. When I mention some of our pipeline, like the oral carbapenem, they stop me and they ask me more. And they want to know when it's going to be approved. They want to know when it's in trials. They want to know when they could become a center for our phase three trial. And that's what tells us that, you know, independent of these incentives, you know, we got to develop drugs that elicit that reaction. It doesn't matter if it's antibiotics or, you know, immunology or neurology, that's our charge as biotech drug developers is to, you know, develop drugs that are really worth the risk and expense that we're taking. And, and that's sort of fundamental to the DNA of Sparrow is that we, you know, started from a blank sheet of paper and we ask ourselves this question every time we bring in something new is how badly do patients need this? And if it's really badly, you know, I think that some of these issues start to, um, we start to find a way collaboratively with our colleagues at uh, CMS and FDA. Interesting. I want to come back to what you alluded to earlier about the Revamp Act. That is, um, I believe it's a bill that's been introduced in Congress that would um, provide um, a novel antibiotic developer with a 12-month exclusivity voucher. I think that's right. So in this case, if, if your lead candidate, 994, were to win this kind of designation, you would get a tradable voucher worth a year's worth of exclusivity. You could turn around and sell that to a big pharma company that wants to, I don't know, extend the life, the patent life on one of its uh, big selling cholesterol drugs, say. That could be worth like a billion dollars. Um, and that's that's money you could put into your your coffers to you know advance more antibiotic R and D. We like the potential of that incentive. I think that our view at Sparrow is you know we don't see our investment case around any drug in the pipeline as depending on it. Though certainly it would benefit Sparrow uh, just like it would benefit other antibiotic companies. We like that particular flavor of incentive because it sort of fits with the way we already do things within biotech and with pharma. It doesn't require a significant amount of additional infrastructure or planning or policy to actually make it a reality. We already do a version of that exclusivity voucher uh, for uh, pediatric and tropical disease types of programs. It seems, you know, we're pragmatic folks here in biotech. This seems like a very pragmatic way, uh, again, to, to the point that you made earlier, to sort of decouple the need to get wide volumes of antibiotics prescribed and, and getting drugs to market. So we like it, uh, though in general, we, we're, we're supportive of, you know, all of the initiatives that, that uh, our legislators and regulators have been working on uh, with us to get there. It's good to see just at least a couple ideas, creative ideas being circulated now, being discussed. This is happening right now. And getting some momentum, right? And, and getting some consensus. I think we're seeing reasonable consensus among antibiotic drug developers, the policy community, BARDA, and the like around these ideas as the, you know, the best ideas we can think of that are readily practicable and 
you know, could really meet the needs of both uh, the system as well as uh, us from a drug developer perspective. In the meantime, though, somebody needs to pay the bills for all this R&D that's going on. And uh, usually that somebody is the federal government. A couple big agencies I know that you have tapped into, BARDA and uh, DITRA, both part of the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, They're providing this non-dilutive funding, which I know investors like. Um, But uh, uh, how, uh, how... important is the role of, you know, classic investors, Wall Street, you know, the big institutional funds. I mean, uh, how how are they viewing all your programs? Well, we've been uh, we've been lucky. Uh, we've been fortunate to raise three private rounds and now two public rounds of financing to complement the nearly 60 million of non-dilutive financing that we've raised, including BARDA awards from DOD, NIH, uh, and the like, um, you know, we've been very lucky that uh, the sort of the the story we've been saying from the beginning, which is find the right assets for the right patients that really speak to the sustainability of of, of a company's trajectory. You know, don't fight with generics. Uh, treat as many patients as you can, and set up data packages that matter. That that's resonated, and so we've been really lucky to have some you know really thoughtful, smart investors, starting with Atlas, of course, but including. You know, SR1, the Lundbeck Fund, Google Ventures, um, pharma ventures like Merck and SR1, um, even as a, you know, in, in terms of our public investing, some, you know, good institutional investors have been, you know, longtime shareholders, both in the IPO and in the follow-on, uh, certainly, um, you know, our colleagues at Fidelity and BBF and, and the like. And, you know, we're, we're grateful for their support. And, you know, certainly we know that we're, you know, we're lucky in terms of the sector, in terms of our ability to have raised meaningful capital. Uh, So our charge now is to continue to build off of that, uh, continue to stick to the strategy that seems to be resonating with the investment community, and and then really do our part to help the ecosystem so other colleagues in the field can continue to do that as well. I mean, it's, uh, you know, sort of speaking from experience, it's never easy to raise capital no matter what you do and we're, we're lucky that we've been able to do that in a, in a serial fashion and now uh, with the, we're in a position where we're uh, we have runway until the the 2020s to do what we need to do around 994 and the rest of the pipeline yeah you did go public I believe in November of last year uh, and just recently did a secondary financing 75 million dollars correct exactly you did we're, we're uh, fortunate so- to have the support of uh, our current investors and some new ones. And is that going to take you through um, phase three? So our, our intention with that financing is to fully finance the pivotal study uh, for SPR 994, as well as advance some of the rest of the pipeline. Well, if you're able to come through there with some encouraging data, with an oral carbapenem for some of those tough gram-negative bugs, that would be the kind of story that uh, a lot of us would want to report on. So I think it's a good time to wrap up. Thanks, Ankit for joining me on The Long Run. Thank you, Luke, for taking the time and for your uh, your interest in the field. We, we definitely need more therapies for these patients. So, so thanks for the time you're spending on it. All right. Keep it up. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. And thanks for listening. Tell your friends about it on your favorite podcast app or on social media. 
If you're interested in sponsoring the show and in raising awareness of your work among industry thought leaders, send me an email at luke at timmermanreport.com. See you next episode.